as we begin our time this morning. Father, thank you for this uh, abundant grace that you've shown to us in enabling us to be together this morning and to gather with your church, with your people. Thank you that we have come to be united with Christ through faith. Thank you that you have been so gracious as to open our eyes to the truth and to help us to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Thank you that we can gather together freely. Thank you that we can be together in fellowship and encouragement. We pray that that would take place this morning. We ask that you would edify us this morning, not in an an arrogant, self-edifying way, but through mutual edification by virtue of using our gifts and serving one another in love. And Father, we pray that you would help us to have insight as we come to your word and that we would, we would understand and that we would grasp the truth of what you have said in your word. As we learned in a previous passage here in 2 Timothy, that Timothy was told the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And we know that we're dependent upon you to give us understanding even as we come to your word where you have spoken. And so we pray that you would give us that. We pray that you would help us to have the kind of true knowledge that would apply the word to our lives and would see the significance of it in every place and make those connections. And we pray that you would help us to humbly submit to what you have said. We pray all this so that you might be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, if you'd like to turn with me to 2 Timothy, we are going to continue in our study of, uh, study of this book. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And this morning we're going to look at the section that covers verses 8 through 13. 8 through 13. You would just follow along there as I read. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. The Apostle Paul writes these words to Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it, eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. As we come to this text this morning, uh, we might generally title this Reasons to Remain Faithful. Which is a little bit unfortunate of a title only in light of the fact that you could almost call every other passage in this book Reasons to Remain Faithful. This really is what the book of 2 Timothy is about. Paul, the imprisoned, long-suffering, faithful servant of Christ is writing to his protege, Timothy, to whom he has been a mentor for a very long time, urging him and encouraging him to remain faithful in gospel ministry and ministry of the word, despite whatever hardships may befall him. We get the sense early in this book that Timothy may be a little bit shaky in terms of his willingness to do this, And so Paul has to tell him in verse 6 of chapter 1 to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And he says in verse 7 that God has not given us a spirit of timidity but of power and love and discipline. And therefore Timothy is not to be ashamed, verse 8, of the testimony of our Lord. 
There's a sense in which we might be ashamed and shrink back from proclaiming the word of God, from speaking the truth of God, uh, that we might hold to it and believe it in our hearts, but not be willing to embrace the consequences that would come from doing so publicly, from being associated with Christ, or from being associated with those who are suffering for the sake of Christ. And so we might distance ourselves from those who are being persecuted, who are suffering for the gospel, and we might try to practice a little bit of self-preservation. Timothy would have been tempted by this. No doubt Paul was in some senses tempted by this, uh, this opportunity for self-preservation, and yet his convictions about the truth of God and about the gospel and about who Christ was and about the future reward that would come to him made it so that he could never give in to those temptations ultimately, but rather he was compelled to remain faithful. So he could say in places like Acts chapter 20, verse 24, that he doesn't account his own life as any account, but only that he may finish the course that he was given by the Lord Jesus to proclaim the gospel of the grace of God. This was Paul's mentality, and he wanted to convey it yet again to Timothy. So these are all reasons to remain faithful. This is the tone of the book. Uh, don't swerve from faithful ministry. Don't sway. So let me ask you, before we begin this, what kind of pressures there are in our day to deviate from faithfulness and boldness in serving the Lord and in speaking the truth of God? What are some of the pressures we face in our day to deviate from this? Give me a few of those. Okay, you'd be unpopular with your friends, or the message would be unpopular among your friends? Yes. We don't want to be unpopular with our friends. We, we, want, we want our friends to be our friends, yeah. What are, the other, what are some other pressures? Okay, you'll be labeled as narrow-minded and judgmental, yeah. Any other words you can think of along those lines? Yeah, you'll be hateful, you're a bigot, yep. Yeah, the, yeah, so part of a professional association that basically requires that you don't say these things without some kind of consequences, formal or informal, but often formal, which can impact your ability to, what, network, to uh, find work, to um, remain employed, those kinds of things. Yeah, these are, these are very real things. Um, and so you have to navigate that with, uh, with a lot of very careful, uh, a lot of very careful thought and a lot of conviction. Yeah. What else? What are the other pressures? Yeah, Patrick.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of hard things in life. It is easy. It is easy in many ways to take the shortcut. Yeah. Anything else you can think of? Pressures to deviate from faithfulness to the truth or boldness with the truth. Timidity, yeah, so being afraid of, yes, saying the wrong thing. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Good. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, comfort, pleasure, security, and focusing on those things. Yeah, discomfort is uncomfortable. I mean, I know that sounds like a very basic thing to say, but. Uh, our temptation anytime something hard happens is to immediately just get out of that hardship, to find any way out of that. And very often we are tempted to or even willing to compromise the truth and compromise biblical obedience for the sake of getting into the easy position. And we can rationalize this a lot of different ways, and we'll talk about that a little bit as we go along. Well, I want to give you just three reasons that he lays out in this text uh, to answer some of our temptations to unfaithfulness. Yes, we're just going to have a storm during this time, huh? Uh, so I wasn't expecting that. Uh, maybe that was on the radar and I didn't see it. So uh, here we are. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, you heard a message. Um, you heard a message that Ryan played, the, uh, the video of to remember Jesus Christ. So we're not going to spend the entire time this morning talking about that, but... Um, Just a few things to remember about Christ. It says in verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Uh, The very first thing to remember about him is simply that he is the one that we serve. He is the one we serve. That is to say that he should be first and foremost in our mind. And when it talks about remembering him, there is a particular type of memory that we are supposed to have of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, some of you who have been out of school for a while, I wonder, uh, do you ever hear a name or see a picture of someone that you went to high school with a long time ago? And you think, you know, I haven't thought about that person in 20 years. I remember them. We did this thing and they were in this class with me and we went to this. But then maybe you move on from them. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So this is, uh, you know, you haven't thought about them for decades. And then somebody mentions their name and you say, oh, Yeah. Yeah, I remember that person. I remember them. That would be one way of remembering. It would be remembering something that you forgot. Uh, This is, and I hope this doesn't get muddled in your mind, but this is actually the exact opposite of that type of memory, which is to say this is not something where you have it lodged away in the back of your mind, stored on some kind of backup hard drive in case you ever need to access the file. This is not like that. Um, this, rather, is to consistently keep Jesus Christ in mind. You know, when you go out, remember to drive carefully. Uh, Remember to be on the lookout when you're in a dangerous place for dangerous situations. It's that kind of thing where you're constantly on the alert. This is what remembering Jesus Christ is about. He is not a long-forgotten classmate. This is you, rather, remembering someone like your parents 
who shaped you to be who you are and invested in you. This is remembering the words of a trusted mentor. This is having all of that front of mind. Um, But it's not even just that because you're not remembering Jesus just as who he is and you're not just remembering that he exists or just thinking about him a lot, but you're remembering him so as to prioritize him. You're remembering so as to put him in the first place, as to put him above all. So Timothy has Jesus set forth before him and Paul says, remember Jesus Christ. This is the one who should be above all in everything you think and everything that you do. And this, of course, is the way that we are supposed to relate to him. We're supposed to love him with all our heart. How can we do this if we have forgotten him? We're supposed to trust him in every situation. How can we do this if we don't think about him and his character and his reliability and his promises and the faithfulness to reward those, uh, our response to those promises? How can we function faithfully? How can we obey Jesus Christ if we don't remember him? How can we be properly motivated to do the things that he says if we don't remember him and think about him? So we need to remember him, not just in general, but as the one that we serve. So remember Jesus Christ, he's the one we serve. Remember Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead, he says. He is risen from the dead. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And of course, there is uh, no more important New Testament truth than this. There are others that come alongside of it just as importantly, such as the atoning work of Christ or the person of Christ and who he is in his deity and in his humanity. Uh, There are certainly things like that, but there is no more important truth than the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and that he remains alive. He is in a state of having been raised from the dead. He was raised and that hasn't changed. He didn't die again like someone like Lazarus or the others who were raised from the dead at Jesus' resurrection. Instead, Jesus was raised and he always will be raised. Romans 6 says that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. So Jesus Christ is in a position of having been raised from the dead. This is where he is. And so he can be spoken of as the one who has defeated death. And this is very important for someone who finds himself in a position like Paul or Timothy. Why would that be? Well, where is Paul right now? In, as 2 Timothy is written, do we know where he is? He's in prison, and he's in prison until what happens? Until he's executed. He says in chapter 4, the time of my departure has come. He's about to die. How does this connect to what Paul is saying here? Well, Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the one who has defeated death. Paul doesn't look at death and say, this is the absolute end of my existence. Instead, he says, because Christ has been raised from the dead, we know that he is Lord over death. And that he is, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, just the first fruits of those who will be raised. Jesus is just the beginning. And all believers will follow one day. We will be raised with him, as we'll see in verse 11. Thirdly, not only is he risen from the dead, but he is the descendant of David. 
He's the descendant of David, which simply says that this is a particularly important person in his office. He is the descendant of David in his humanity, emphasizing that he came in the flesh, but also he is the promised Messiah. God keeps his promises and gave Jesus to the world. He sent him into the world as the promised son, and one day he will rule on David's throne, and he will fulfill all the promises that God has made all the way from the Old Testament until the present time. Jesus is the descendant of David, and he will abundantly reward your service to him because he is going to be the one who doles out those rewards when he sits on the throne, ruling over the nations. All of this is true, Paul says, according to my gospel. When you see that phrase, what question comes to your mind? Paul says, according to my gospel. Got any questions about that? Yeah, is it different from someone else's gospel? You know, Peter, he forgot to talk about Jesus Christ and that whole resurrection from the dead thing. That's not really true of Peter, but you get what I'm saying, right? It's not that there is a different gospel that somebody else preaches. It's that Paul uh, felt an ownership of this message. It is that he himself preached this message. It was entrusted to him and that he felt responsibility for this. This is what he had said all along. This is what Timothy had heard him say. He says, Timothy, this is what I've been preaching. Paul didn't have a different gospel from others, and he went out of his way in many places to show that. Uh, in particular, in the book of Galatians, he goes out of his way to say, not only did I not get my gospel from anyone else, rather I received it by way of revelation, Galatians chapter 1, uh, but when I went up to Jerusalem because of a revelation, the people who were there who were reputed to be pillars didn't add anything to me. Peter and James, they didn't add anything to my message. Instead, they actually recognized the grace of God that had been at work in me with taking my gospel to the Gentiles. And they said, look, this is the same message. This is the same message. In fact, Paul went so far as to say in Galatians chapter 6, uh, excuse me, Galatians chapter 2, that it was one of the other apostles, Peter, who deviated from faithfulness to the gospel at one point by not accepting Gentiles and not eating with Gentile Christians because he was afraid. And Paul rebuked him publicly. So Peter was the one who did that. And Paul says, look, my gospel is the same gospel that Jesus entrusted to me. It's the same one preached by the apostles. It's no different than any other. And yet he felt so personally his responsibility and his trust in to this message that he said, this is my gospel. And this is not the only place he says this. Romans chapter 2, verse 16 is another place. It was a few other places. But this is Paul's gospel. He personally loved and preached and felt that he was a steward of this according to what God had entrusted to him. And he says, Timothy, you need to follow and remember the truths that were conveyed in this message that I have. So when ministry is hard, when you're tempted to fade, when you're tempted to quit, when you're tempted to sway or to back down, remember Jesus Christ. So now Paul turns to another example for Timothy, and it's not Jesus in this case, but it is Paul himself. He refers to the gospel as that which he has deemed worthy of suffering. And so the second thing to, that we need to keep in mind if we want to remember these reasons to suffer, we need to understand Paul's willingness to suffer. Understand Paul's willingness to suffer. Now, again, this is not something new. Um, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 8, join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 12, he says, for this reason I also suffer these things. 
So this is not new, but he does speak here uh, in particular of a few unique components of that. One of these is the extent of his willingness to suffer. The extent of his willingness. He says up front, for which I suffer hardship. And of course, he suffers hardship, he's saying, for this gospel For the sake of preaching this gospel, and this is the context in which he suffers, by the way, Peter warns his readers in 1 Peter not to suffer as an evildoer or some kind of criminal. He says, don't suffer because you do something wrong. That's not Christian suffering. And by the way, I think many of us need to heed this message today and say, just because someone is against us doesn't mean that we're being faithful to Christ in the thing that they're against us for. But we can often rationalize that and say, well, we're Christians and someone's coming after us for our conviction. Therefore, it is a Christian conviction that we're suffering for. And that's not always the same thing. Here, Paul is clear. He is suffering because of his gospel ministry. He is suffering because he's being faithful. And he says he suffers presently and characteristically. This is the idea behind this word, for which I suffer. I do suffer this. I am suffering this right now in prison. This is characteristic of my life and has led me to this point where I am suffering as if I were a criminal, even to imprisonment as a criminal. Paul is not a criminal. Paul has not done anything evil. He has not done anything wrong, but he is being treated as if he has. Now, it is possible that to get himself into prison, he has violated some type of legal edict. So this isn't to say that he has not violated some law, perhaps from the emperor um, or otherwise. But the fact remains that Paul has not done anything that is actually evil. He is suffering because people are telling him there are things you can't do that you should be allowed to do if you are allowed to do what's pleasing to God. And he says, I'm imprisoned, I'm suffering just as Christ suffered, and I am doing so even though this is not the case and I am being treated like I'm a criminal. Now think about all the things that Paul has just said and think about if he was trying to comfort himself in this situation, what might he say? Think about that for a second. If you were in this situation and you were being mistreated as a criminal because you had preached the gospel to someone, What are some of the truths biblically that you would try to bring to mind to comfort yourself in that situation? How would you encourage yourself? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, Jesus also suffered, that's right. And, And Paul does this elsewhere. You know, he says that he wants to be conformed to Christ's sufferings, Philippians 3. So that he may be conformed to his life and the resurrection from the dead. Yeah, Daniel? Okay. You su- the sufferings of other saints? Yeah, in scripture. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. So he's not the only one. Like, like Hebrews 11, all those people who suffered for their faith. Yep. Yeah? Good. What else would you tell yourself yeah of course Amen. Mm. 
Okay, yeah, so suffering does, it, it can has that effect, have that effect upon us. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, for momentary light affliction is doing what? Producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So as you suffer, physically speaking, in this life, this is working something inside of you that when Christ comes and when we are revealed with him in glory is going to explode in glory. It's like magnifying that and making that greater as you suffer and are sanctified through that suffering. Of course, as we know, suffering is not intrinsically, inherently sanctifying. It is potentially sanctifying and potentially very sanctifying if we respond to it with perseverance, with endurance, with faith, as James 1 describes. But uh, it, it can produce that. It can, it can have that work in our heart. Patrick. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What would it be like to be the guy who had, who had preached all of these reasons? You know, now he's got to live this himself. But we can take these things as authoritative because they're in Scripture. Uh, you know, Paul also said in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 24 and 25, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. So he saw himself as suffering for the sake of other people. He says, therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. He understood that the work was not just creating a, an internal glory that would one day be revealed in him when Christ returned, but it also would result in the future glorification of other saints. And we'll see that here in a moment in the next verse. So think about all of those things that Paul has talked about and then consider all the things he could have said that comfort him. But uh, he has some other things here that bring him comfort in his hardship and in his imprisonment. And they're here in verses 9 and 10. Uh, One of these is found in verse 9 where he says... The word of God is not imprisoned. The extent of his willingness to suffer is this, that he does this even to imprisonment as a criminal. The comfort in his gospel suffering, the comfort in his gospel suffering is that the word of God is not bound, even though Paul himself is. Um, Philippians chapter 1, Paul speaks about this pretty explicitly and he says in verse 12 starting in verse 12 I want you to know brethren that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Now, you may have uh, heard this before, but... In that passage, Paul is not simply saying, I'm glad that the name of Christ is preached whatever way that comes out. He is not saying that 
that false doctrine or false views of Christ or wrong ways of preaching Christ are good. He is not saying that the message is unimportant. He is actually here just distinguishing the motivations of people who are accurately preaching Christ. Some of them do it out of love for Paul. Others do it out of jealousy. Both, according to Philippians 1, proclaim the word of God accurately, at least as so far as they're preaching Christ as the Savior and they're preaching him, is, uh, they're preaching a faithful gospel. Paul is simply saying that uh, the word of God is going forth. And uh, some people do it for good reasons, some people do it for bad reasons. But here in 2 Timothy, he is saying something similar, which is that the word of God is not captive with me. And what this shows is that he saw the spread of the word of God as more important than his own circumstances. He elevated the spread of God's word above how his life was going. And he could rejoice even when things were very bad for him on a personal level because of the work that God was doing through spreading the word of God to other people. And in particular, how he had done that through him. And he's very thankful for that. Um, I think sometimes we justify our willingness or lack of willingness to be faithful in proclaiming God's word by saying, well, if we do this, this would damage our ability to get it out. And maybe there is something to the idea of being careful and being wise and uh, and you know strategic in some way with speaking the truth. But the truth is, the word of God um, is not bound even when we ourselves are. When our circumstances are limited, the word of God can continue to run. And so people can be confined to limited spaces, but God's word cannot. Uh, last week, uh, it's been over a week now, hard to believe, but uh, several of us went to youth camp. Some of you here were at camp, and uh, we got quite a bit of rain that week. Three days of basically nonstop rain and mist. It was amazing. The, uh, the radar showed nothing above us, and still somehow the rain was coming down. Uh, just this constant mist. It was like, uh, you know, how the manna would just come up from the ground for Israel and show up in the dew. It was like the rain would just appear out of nowhere in the sky. But um, anyway, we're, we were camping in tents. We tried our best to keep the water out. You know, you properly set up the rain fly and you make sure there's nothing touching the edge of the tent. You keep everything zipped as best you can. Um, but the reality is, you know, it, it's water. Like water is sometimes just going to get through. It's going to find a way to get through um, ultimately almost anything. But uh, it made me think a little bit about this passage. Though The word of God is kind of like that, except for instead of uh, getting into anything, the word of God can get out. The word of God finds a way to travel, and no prison door or gate or wall is able to keep it in. And so Paul says here, the word of God is not imprisoned. Now, an important qualifier here, had Paul never told anyone else these words, then the word of God would have not been spreading as much while he was in prison. The reason why it's not imprisoned is because it didn't depend upon him because he had proclaimed it and other people had heard it and other people had been entrusted with the message, people like Timothy. So Paul can go to prison, but Timothy can preach it. And Timothy might end up in prison, but Titus could preach it. And all the people that they had deposited this with. And this is why it's so important to pass the truth down to other people and to go ahead and get the word out to other people so that the truth doesn't rest and reside in one person. So Paul can rejoice that this is going on despite his own imprisonment, even as the apostle who would have been seen as, and in many ways was, uh, very, very important to the message. 
And yet it is not utterly dependent on any one person, but rather the word of God can go no matter what the circumstances are of even the most important person who has had it entrusted to him. So um, Paul here says that uh, the word of God is not imprisoned and he was pleased to have entrusted it to others. And that heart of spreading it to others is what's reflected in verse 10. And here we find Paul's motivation to endure all things. His motivation to endure all things. And it is um, a fascinating and really instructive verse. Verse 10. For this reason, I endure all things. He is willing to endure not just some, but all. What is it that keeps him doing this? Why is he willing to endure all things? And it is... Not only because he remembers Jesus Christ, not only because he knows that his suffering won't keep the word of God in prison, but because he remembers other people, specifically the people that God has given to Jesus Christ to be saved and to be his forever. Let's consider the object of his concern. Namely, he says, for the sake of those who are chosen, for the sake of those who are chosen, These are the people that keep Paul going. These are the people that make Paul willing to suffer anything if he can still try to do for them what God intends him to do for them. And he very intentionally picks a certain group that is less than the sum total of all mankind. Now, it isn't that Paul is hostile toward others. In fact, he would wish that everyone would be saved, but he recognizes something. He knows what is, for many of us, a hard truth to accept, which is that God, before time began, has set apart some people in order to belong to him and to be redeemed and to be brought to future glory and to have eternal life. And what we notice here is that Paul's gospel ministry is aimed at finding those people. It is aimed at finding and bringing salvation to the elect. That's literally what the word is. I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, those who are elect, the elect. It's a very straightforward, very bold, even if not that popular of a statement. And Paul says, these are already chosen. The sake of those who are chosen. That is their nature. That is the group that they are in. But he says, I endure all things for them. And as we'll see in a minute, he says, he has to get the gospel to them. He has to get them the word of God. So if he's trying to, uh, if he's trying to do all things for the sake of those who are chosen, you might ask the question, how does he know who they are? How does Paul know who they are? What would you say? How would Paul know who they are who are chosen? Tell me. How does he know? It's by how they respond. That's exactly right. Paul does not know before he preaches to them whether or not they're chosen. That simply is impossible to know. Paul preaches the gospel to all people indiscriminately. 
it's like going out on a beach and taking your, uh, you know, your, your uh, what are those, metal detectors. You know, you see people if you ever go to the beach and there's, you know, there's the guy out there and he's got the headphones in or whatever. And he just, he's out there on the beach in the afternoon with not that many people out there searching for, you know, the wedding rings that these poor souls have lost during the day. And then he's going to go make some money off of it or whatever they do with them. I don't know. Uh, but he's searching for treasure. But he doesn't know exactly what section of the beach is going to turn up that treasure. He just has confidence that they are out there. And that confidence might be grounded in just thinking about the fact that with all these people, they're surely going to drop something or maybe the experience of having done it before. He has reasons why he believes this. Paul understands that there are those who are chosen because not only has he seen them come to salvation over the course of his ministry, but also because God simply speaks of this as a truth. This is a divine truth. God has chosen some for salvation. So he preaches to all indiscriminately because he has no idea of how to tell who they are until they believe. And so his goal is not to say, well, I think there's, that person's chosen. Let me preach to him. That person's elect. Let me preach to him. Or that person looks pretty likely to be elect. You know, they're a good person or they're not very hostile to the gospel. Let me preach to him. No, his goal is to preach the gospel to everyone and thereby uncover the elect. And the reason or the way that that happens is when they respond in faith. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians earlier, much earlier in his ministry, and he says uh, in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. That's a bold statement to make. How do you know this, Paul? Well, two reasons. One is the way the gospel came to them and the way God worked through Paul. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. So the way the message came and then also the way the message was responded to. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He says, your gospel response to my gospel preaching showed me that you were chosen. And we know that God chose you. We are confident of this. It is not because Paul had a list that was given to him to go and find It was not because Paul had a supernatural sixth sense that could detect the elect and tell them who they were. It was because he preached to them and they responded. That's how he knew, not until then. This is, again, not always the way that we expect these things to play out. There's a passage in Acts 13 that I'd like you to look at. Acts 13, Paul is preaching to the Gentiles And uh, this is the first chapter of the first missionary journey where he was sent out from Antioch along with Barnabas. And they go through several places in the region of Galatia. They get to uh, verse 44. They're in the synagogue. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiated and judge yourselves worthy of, un- unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And look at this last phrase and tell me what you expect this to say. 
What you expect it to say is, as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. Doesn't that make more sense to us? They believed and they were appointed to eternal life. But what does it say? As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. This is the chosen. These are the ones that God has appointed to have eternal life from before time began. And these were the ones who responded to the gospel call. Paul understands how this works, at least that it works. He may not understand all of the metaphysics of this, and certainly he doesn't, and none of us do except for God. We don't have to know exactly how it works on a mechanical level to understand that it is true. Paul understood this, and it was a consistent theme throughout his ministry, such that he would say in Titus chapter 1 that he was an apostle verse 1, for the faith of those chosen of God. That's what he was trying to do, is to bring the gospel and elicit a response of faith from those who had been chosen by God already. But let's look at the way that Paul puts this, because this is different than the way we sometimes practically and functionally work out this doctrine of choosing and of election. The second half of verse 10 He says, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they may also, or excuse me, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Even in his initial statement, the first half of the verse, he implies that there is something that must be done for these who were chosen or else the desired outcome will not take place. In other words, Why would Paul go through so much suffering if they're already chosen and that's all that matters? If nothing else has to be done, then why would Paul be willing to give his life, literally, for the sake of these people? And it's because he understands that them being chosen is not the end of the story. Being elect, being chosen is simply not all there is to it because God has designed it such that those who are chosen must still hear and respond to the gospel. They will hear and respond to the gospel under God's sovereign hand, but Paul doesn't simply assume they're chosen, therefore God's going to take care of it and he's going to do so without me. He doesn't think that way. He says they need to hear. They need to get this message. They need to believe. And I'm a gospel preacher. And God has appointed me for this. So I need to take them the message. He doesn't rationalize it away and say, well, they're chosen, so God will take care of it. No, he wants to be involved. And he understands this, that God uses means to bring about his sovereign purposes. God has appointed them to be saved, yes, but God uses means. And Paul has a desire for these chosen people. What are his desires for the chosen? Namely, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, first of all, and that they would receive with that salvation eternal glory. In other words, that they might be saved and one day glorified. That's what he wants for them. So question... Why does someone need to hear the gospel if he has already been chosen? Why does someone need to hear the gospel if he's already been chosen by God? How would you answer that to yourself or to others who would perhaps be demotivated from evangelism because of that? Yeah. 
Okay, so we're tempted, and we are, uh, we're supposed to entrust God with our souls and to endure. Yeah, what else? Absolutely. Yeah, Romans chapter 10 tells us that, right? Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of God. You cannot be saved apart from hearing the word of God. God doesn't just zap people and save them because they're chosen. He uses the instrumentality of the means of the word of God. This is spoken of uh, in many places throughout Scripture, but First um, Peter one twenty three: For you have been born again. Oh, great! God caused me to come to life. Did He do it by fiat? He says, "Not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God." He goes on to say in verse twenty five: This is the word which was preached to you in the book of James. In chapter 1, verse 18, it says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth, how? By the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. God uses the hearing of his word as then that which must be believed in order for salvation to come. Um, how is someone going to call on the name of the Lord, which is required for salvation, if they don't hear? So then, uh, salvation doesn't come just by being chosen, but by responding to the gospel. So a few things that are true in light of this. First of all, no one can say that they are elect or chosen unless and until they believe the gospel. No one can say they are elect or chosen until and unless they believe the gospel. On the other side of this, no one who believes the gospel needs to worry about whether or not they were chosen and allowed to believe it. Very often this is what people are concerned about. I believe the gospel, but I'm not sure if I'm not sure if I'm chosen. I'm not sure if I'm elect, if I'm part of this. Scripture tells us clearly if you believe the gospel that you are chosen. You have been chosen. The reason why you believed in the first place is because God chose you. And when you heard the gospel in his providence and his grace, then the response was brought about. He brought you forth by the word of truth. And so you saw yourself responding by faith, which was real. And the reason why that happened is because God opened your heart to believe, which you learn about as you read the scripture, interpreting your experience for you. But no one who believes the gospel needs to fret and worry that they are not elect. The only thing along those lines that we should do if we want to make sure of our choosing is uh, what 2 Peter 1 says, to be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. And the way Peter says to do that is not by looking for the book of life and trying to find your name on it, but it is by growing in godliness. Because Peter says as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble, never stumble. Um, Another implication of this text is that no one can be content to just let God save whomever he will save when God makes it clear that they won't be saved unless they hear the gospel message. They will not be saved unless they hear the gospel message. You say, what if they're elect? You cannot even think that way. They need to be saved. They need to hear the gospel message for this to take place. All of this is wrapped up together in uh, one verse in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. How does he do this? Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. 
This is most likely that positional sanctification, the definitive sanctification of setting apart a person from their sin to God, to being a saint, and their exercise of faith in the truth. So it is the work of the Spirit of God setting you apart to be one of his people. It is your work of faith in response to the truth. God has chosen you to be saved through those means, the Spirit's work and your response. And Paul says, we give thanks to God for this, not to you, brethren. We give thanks to God because God is the one who has done this. This is where election should go. It should go to evangelism because we need to recognize that the chosen need to hear the gospel and be saved. And it should go to praise of God because he is the one who has brought about the salvation of anyone who has been saved. Otherwise, no one would respond even to such a glorious message. So then, let's not election deter us from evangelism. Let's make sure that we proclaim the message and that we are driven through the hardest of hardships to preach Christ because we understand what needs to take place for those that God has chosen for salvation. Where would we be who we would now say, if we are Christians, we're chosen by God. Where would we be had someone not brought the gospel to us? You can say, well, we were chosen. Well, you wouldn't have known that. You could say you have to, that we, we would have believed at some point, well, what was the point at which you believed? It's because someone brought you the message. So let's be those instruments and bring the gospel to others. Um, let me go ahead and briefly cover the last three verses here uh, in the last few minutes of our time. Um, the final motivation that Paul has here is believers' future reward, his future, their future reward. And he picks up what he says is a trustworthy statement. This does seem to be a statement that is not being uh, spoken for the first time in Paul's letter here. This does seem to be something that was a common statement. Uh, often when he says it's a trustworthy statement, this is the case. And, and uh, something about the somewhat poetical nature of this uh, would indicate to me that this is something that had been developed a little bit. And Paul says this is true. This is a trustworthy statement. So people are saying this. Uh, people have heard this. You, Timothy, may have even heard this as well. But these facts that he lays out here, these are trustworthy, these are true, these are authoritative, and they are reliable. And he speaks about, uh, first of all, the rewards for faith, and then he speaks of the faithfulness of Christ. The rewards of faith, he uh, goes through three tenses, past, present, and future. If we died, if we endure, if we deny, or something that would take place in the future if we were to deny him. One of these things, there is an initial statement, would then lead to the next. If we died, we will also. If we endure, we will also. If we deny, he also will. And so if one thing happens, then another thing will happen. So what are they? The rewards for faith, first of all, union with Christ leads to eternal life. Union with Christ leads to eternal life. And believers have been united with Christ through baptism of the Spirit. When we come to faith in Christ, we are united with him. As the Spirit of God comes to dwell in us, we are baptized by the Spirit of God. We are placed into union with Christ. We are now in Christ, with Christ. Our life is bound up in him. Part of this is that we died in a certain sense with Christ. Romans 6 talks about this. We've been united with him in the likeness of his death. What does Paul say in Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, 
He says in Galatians 6, 14, uh, that uh, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There's a very real sense in which we died spiritually with Christ. Not spiritual death of rebellion against God, but death of the old man so that we might live anew with him. But it's not just that spiritual life that he speaks of here as the outcome of spiritual death but if we died with him and we're united with him we also we will also live with him and what he's saying here is if we were crucified in our old man and if all of our passions and desires and if everything that was true about us was put away then one day the day will come when we will be like him in his physical resurrection not just the current spiritual life which we have but all together this is the way that Romans 8 puts it as well in Romans 6 where we have this initial eternal life but that there is going to be more and one day we will live with him. So Timothy, you might suffer even to death for the sake of Christ but guess what? You already died spiritually and one day you're going to be raised to life with him physically. So union with Christ leads to eternal life. Secondly, endurance leads to reigning with Christ. Again, the promise to endure, not just to suffer even unto death, but to endure. And he says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. We sometimes forget this. We just think we're going to be with Christ in heaven. We think that we will uh, benefit from many things there, but we forget that we're going to have this immense privilege of reigning with Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul does, don't you know you're going to judge angels? We're going to, believers are going to literally rule the world. And this is the promise that is made. Christ says, be faithful unto death. I'll give you the crown of life. He says, he who overcomes, I'll grant him to sit on my throne, just as the Father granted me to sit on his throne, Revelation 3.21. He is not here saying that there may not be any moment of any form. Uh, excuse me, this is... So let me mention this here in a second. Um, because there's a third truth. Denying Christ results in being denied. This is the negative threat. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Luke 9, 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. Uh, this is the negative side. He says you need to be willing to suffer. You need to be willing to endure. And you need to hold fast the truth of Christ and not deny him. This is all just the same stuff he's already said in First Timothy or 2 Timothy 1 and into chapter 2. Endure, suffer, and hold fast to Christ, confessing him. And here he says, if you deny him, he's going to deny you. Uh, now, we have seen instances of people denying Christ in Scripture, at least on some level, momentarily, and uh, being restored from that, though there were certain repercussions from that. Peter, of course, comes to mind, but uh, consider the heart that is once willing to deny Christ, and just remember, that does not easily change. Don't say, well, I'll just deny him this one time because Peter did. Well, Judas also denied him one time as well and did not respond, and we shouldn't presume upon God's grace to change our hearts from an attitude that's willing to sin against Christ in this way. God was gracious to Peter but we should not assume that that will be the case, that he will restore us. Repentance is not impossible, and a moment of weakness is not impossible, but we should be very fearful of relying upon that for assurance, and instead we should be diligent to confess Christ rather than to deny him. Uh, last thing is in verse 13. 
which is the faithfulness of Christ. This is a somewhat of a difficult and uh, much disputed verse in terms of exactly what he's trying to say here. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Some would say he remains faithful to us, meaning that even if we're faithless, he's still going to preserve us. Uh, others would say if we are faithless, he remains faithful and he judges us. I'm not sure that he's drilling down that far on either count. I think that what he is doing is just simply setting up a general contrast between men who are often not as faithful as they should be, and Christ who is always faithful. Christ remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And there is an implicit call in many ways with that to remain faithful as Christ is, to recognize that Christ never changes and that we should be faithful like he is, to set the standard high and to say that even at the same time that there is a fundamental difference between us and he is never going to change And so Christ is exalted even more, not only in the way that we serve him and the way that we should respond to him, but also in the fact that he himself is unchanging and he will always remain faithful to everything that he has said and to all his promises. And that should be an encouragement to us who would benefit from being willing to suffer and endure to grasp hold of the promises that Christ makes for us. All of these then are reasons to endure. And uh, I hope that this is an encouragement to you. Uh, Next week, Ryan will pick up with the next section, and I hope you'll be here for that. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning, and help us, please, to diligently and carefully endure holding fast the truth, being willing to suffer if needed for the sake of the gospel, and trusting you in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.